Welcome to Curated Conversation, a podcast discussing issues related to equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with leadership teams, employees, and individuals to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. I'm excited to be joined today by Phil Jay, Operations Coordinator of Red Dot Project Toronto. Phil is a professor in Seneca College's Social Service Worker Program. Phil recounts that a student in his field placement seminar told him about a situation in her placement at a residence for homeless youth where a service user was not was only provided with tampons even though she requested pads. The thought that a woman who was unable to manage her period in that manner she, that which she chooses felt wrong. Giving women experiencing homelessness the opportunity to manage their periods should be a right. It was at that moment that he decided to take an initiative to supply period products to individuals experiencing homelessness in downtown Toronto. In 2017, after partnering with students Lucy and Bartsumayan, Wahida Ali, and Haley Much, Red Dot Project was born. It had also received funding to operate a temporary outreach van for individuals who bleed that had moved into temporary housing. On top of period products, Red Dot Project also delivers cleaning and hygiene supplies and conducts wellness checks to ensure that these individuals are not feeling isolated during the pandemic. Welcome to you, Phil. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, first off the bat, I want to say whoever picked out that intro music for this podcast, it's uh, that beat goes pretty hard. Like, <laughs> was it you? Yeah, actually, we listened to a few different uh, samples and then... We kind of picked one and, you know, I always am of the mind that it can change. It doesn't have to kind of go on the whole time. Um, we can change it after one year, after six months, but I liked it. It was like upbeat and fun. I didn't want it to be too serious. Yeah. It's like, you know, one of those real things that I don't know, perfectionists like me would always stress over, like I need to get the right vibe. And then it's, uh, it's good. It's good. So <laughs> I'll, I'll ask you the first question. So I've been wondering because the Red Dot Project advocates for period equity uh, and those who bleed, as you've uh, said in your work. And I've been dying to know what inspired you to start the Red Dot Project. Yeah, um, you know, like I am, you know, full disclosure, a heterosexual, cisgendered male. You know, it, I grew up, you know, in the suburbs for most of my life. Um, and so, you know, I've, I come with a lot of privilege that I really, even though I lived in a household with all females, um, I never really had to think or talk about periods ever. So it never really came to my attention that, you know, there, there was just so much complexity to um, periods, menstruation, and all of it. And there's tons of it um, that we could go over much longer than what we have time for today. But basically, um, like you said in the intro, when a student just talked about how you know, something that for me, I never had to think about someone not having the right supplies to manage something so personal. So, you know, just something that you think everyone would have is, you know, the type of supplies they need to manage the period, the way that they feel, uh, pads or tampons. And, you know, I think this ignorant side of me just thought like, you know, well, you know, what's, you know, it should be there. Everyone should have it whatever but then when i heard the student talk about how um you know this person had to use tampons instead of pads 
even though they would really prefer pads, you know, and I thought, you know, we all know what a tampon is. And for a lot of people, that's like something that's even, you know, they don't feel comfortable using at all either. So uh, to be forced to use something like that, for me, just didn't sit well. You know, I, I sat on it for much longer than I thought that I, you know, love to admit to like a couple of months where I was like, oh, you know, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right to me that that's happening. Uh, you'd think someone who's accessing a support like a shelter or something like that, that this stuff should just be readily available for them. Um, after learning more about it, I quickly learned that a lot of shelters, they don't have allocate, they didn't have at least many of them allocated funding for this, uh, for these products, especially if it's co-ed, they definitely didn't. And even when it was focused more for women, they didn't really have funds to buy supplies. And um, so a lot of people accessing shelters, they may get uh, just a couple of pieces of either tampons or pads, whatever they have for the the week. And that's what they have to make do with. And uh, when I learned more about that, I just knew that that's just like, not okay. Yeah. And you know, I, I resonate with what you're saying about how you sort of sat on it for a little bit, because as an educator, you know, my students would come to me or my fellow educators about an issue, whether it's in school or society, community, that was really weighing on them, they wanted to change. But it's like, how do you determine when to move forward with that? And so when you said, okay, I sat on it for a bit, and it was kind of gnawing at me, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what kind of made you act on that? You know, it sounded like you had like a kind of an ethical, moral, like dilemma or awakening or something like that. Um, so I don't know if you can speak a little bit more about that or sort of just what was happening in your mind. What were you thinking about, uh, throughout this process? Funny enough, it was a, a random Facebook move, uh, video that popped up. And I don't know if, you know, it's our phones listening to us or no, whatever, but, you know, just randomly in 2017, after a couple of months of, you know, thinking about it, and then all of a sudden this video popped up of a story of a young woman from, Portland, Oregon, uh, by the name of Nadia Okamoto. She founded what became Period, which turned out to be at the time or very short, shortly after the uh, largest youth-led NGO in the world. She was, I think, 14 or something like that, early teens when she started working on this idea of just collecting supplies and giving them to shelters, specifically menstrual supplies. And and just seeing her being able to do that is just like, it's sort of like a slap in the face. It's like, you know, if a young teen in Portland, Oregon could do it, then why can't this me, some adult in Toronto, Ontario, why, what's stopping me? And at that point I said, okay, you know, I'm gonna, I want to do something. I, because I'm in this social service field, I don't want it to be something like how, you know, Thank you for all those who go and hand out sandwiches and stuff, you know, during the winter and stuff like that, the one-off type of things. I want it to be something sustainable because, you know, in this field, we really, if when you start providing these type of services to just cut it off abruptly because it's inconvenienced you, it's not really fair. So for me, it, everything had to be sustainable, had to be something that we're continuing to work on until we, you know, we see it through. And so after I decided, okay, I saw this Facebook video that said, I got to do something, figure out how to do something. I just knew I had to do something that's sustainable. And then that's when I started to uh, talk to a couple of my students. I worked on something separate with. Uh, they're really great students, Haley, Lucy, 
Wahida and I just told them at the end of the semester, I said, hey, this summer, this is what I want to work on. Is this something you want to do with me? If we do it, we're committed to the long haul of it. But, you know, they said, thankfully, they said yes. And um, we just got to work. We we planned it and built it like a non-for-profit, like a social service type of organization as opposed to a charity, which it's great. The, the organizations, there's tons of them now, and that's great that operate more charity-based type of work. Our mindset always has been very much on the social service side, client-centered, um, you know, really building sustainability and, you know, really trying to solve the issue as opposed to, you know, just doing Band-Aid solutions, which, again, you know, the reason we do a lot of our outreach is because there is immediate need. So we do do that, but behind the scenes, this there's a lot of thought in how do we grow this to be something that uh, is really going to, hopefully, if we do good enough, we'll work ourselves out of a job, right? Like it solves the problem. The issue is no longer there and we don't have to do it anymore. That's the only, when we got into it, that was my mindset is, you know, we're going to do this until we don't need to do it anymore because the need's not there. Absolutely. I think that's really critical. And also you mentioned, I know you work alongside your former students in this project, but I think for me, what I want our listeners to hear and see um, and think about is that, you know, period advocacy is not just a women's rights issue, right? That men can also support. Because I often find when we talk about pay equity, when we talk about gender equity or gender inclusion, I always have women coming up to the table and I don't have a lot of men stepping up. But I think what um, impresses me about this and what I was always drawn to even before I knew about Red Dot Project and when we first met is that, uh, you know, you're using, and you named this already, your power, your privilege, your status, your positionality as a cisgender male to step up and do something. And I think that is really commendable. And you started telling us a little bit about the Red Dot Project through, through that last question. And I just want our listeners to kind of know more about that and know more about, you know, perhaps the mission, goals, and values of Red Dot Project, and how you kind of bring other men or, or non-leaders, you know, uh, to the project. Yeah, it, it's it's a real constant, you know, reflection that I always have to do with this work. Um, because for me, uh, as, I, as we start to build it and do this work, like, um, I, again, I was working with... Um, you know, people, a group of people that were very new into this type of field, this type of work. And, you know, I was sort of the more uh, experienced person. So I was sort of leading this sort of uh, project. And so I've had always high expectations of what we could build this to and where we could go with it. Maybe they didn't always see what I've sort of, uh, sort of saw, but they trusted me. And um, I think I tried to throw them into a lot of situations of speaking engagement, things like that, that just they're not always comfortable with. So for me, as again, as a cisgender heterosexual male that doesn't experience menstruation, uh, I'm always I'm trying to be very careful when I am sort of used as sort of the voice for this stuff. Um, And I really pick carefully of when that happens. And I always try to offer it off to some of the other members because I think it's, it's much better when it comes from people with the lived experience of this. 
um, whether it is homelessness or whether it is menstruation or the combination of both too. So often when I speak, I try to make it very clear that I'm speaking off of the experiences that I'm hearing from other people and putting that further than <laughs> me. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, you know, not everyone's always comfortable in front of the camera. Not everyone's comfortable, you know, talking to the mic and, um, and, you know, it's that debate of, you know, do you lose the opportunity of propelling this movement, this cause, uh, because, you know, of, you know, someone not having this right speaker or how do we navigate that has been something that I always constantly struggle with and figure out how to do. So, you know, as, you know, um, as a man that does not menstruate doing this work, um, you know, it's something that I think about a lot. And again, um, I try not to lose sight that I have to always understand where my role is in it. Um, and when there are, uh, you know, the people who are willing to talk about this issue that have the experience that I will never have, um, it's up to me to always you know, move aside and let that happen and, and give those opportunities to the other people who will. And, and that's a big part of, I actually read that project when I envisioned the work aside of, you know, the menstrual equities piece is the mentorship that I hope to provide with, uh, you know, a lot of the people who work with me on this are from Seneca's SSW program. Um, so there are a lot of former students or current students that I do work on this with. Um, and the big thing is just it gives me an opportunity to mentor and show them some of the pieces of how to do this work that they could transfer to whatever passion project that they have in the future. And that prepares them better um, that I don't always get to do at, in my teaching role um, because of, you know, teaching is a lot more structured that way. Um, so but going back to your question, um, you know, with Red Dot Project, you know, our main goal um, very simply is to allow people experiencing homelessness who menstruate opportunity to choose how to menstruate and have that freedom to be able to do that um, without worry because of, you know, the, you know, byproducts and effects that come from not being able to do that um, can get quite severe, whether there's health implications, whether mental health implications, all these different things that can apply. So just very, that basic necessity is sort of our main goal. And then the bigger picture things that we try to work on is the uh, societal, cultural ideas of menstruation, what it is, and how we need to change that to hopefully open the door for more menstrual equity in the future. Thank you. And I was going to ask you, you know, there's a lot of advocacy groups out there. I know when I was in the classroom, there was some um, projects abroad where we could actually, <clears throat> excuse me, like sew pads and send them abroad. <clears throat> but uh, when I when I hear you speak, I'm understanding that Red Dot Project is dedicated to serving the homeless or houseless community solely is that correct uh initially that's where we really focused on mm -hmm. and i think i think that's one of the things when you do this work um is you want to keep it simple because you want to be able to really make a difference and then as you get into it and you get really into it you realize all the complexity that exists um where you, if you just focus on the one thing then you're missing out on so much more that is affecting each other like 
you know, it, it's so um, when in a lot of our messaging, we try to focus strictly on this issue of homelessness and menstruation. But in reality, we know there's just so much more and we're trying to do a lot of that extra work behind the scenes to ensure that, um, you know, our work is always considering what the service users experiences are Um, because it's easy. Like we could just collect some supplies, find a corner, hand them out, walk away and that's it. But um, anyone who's done this work and really try to intend to do this work right knows that um you have to really think about you know things like the packaging how much products you put in i learned quickly you know for me you know when we started this is just like give them more than enough products that they need and that's great and then they then they don't have to worry on what i've heard over some time is some people say you know they don't really need that much at once because then they have to worry about caring that much on them as they go through so if they have a place that they could pick up a little bit at a time that's even better too for some people and you know there's just all these different things that you know when you really want to do this work from a very client-centered focused um, and experienced type of mindset you learn that you can't um, oversimplify it you have to be willing to really complicate it and figure out all those little nuances and experiences and try to meet the needs of as many people as possible. Yeah. So I, I'm hearing that there's a lot of growing and changing and evolving and, you know, this work, advocacy work, activism work, uh, you know, social services work is kind of about trial and error sometimes and learning. And you also spoke to something that we've brought up in our podcast before is serving the community's needs, right? Not necessarily what you think they need or what your students at that time had thought that they needed but really what the community needs. And so I think those pieces that you just shared are really key, right? To know how much to put, where to put the supplies, not to just, you know, stand at a corner, but that there's advocacy and education involved as well. And, you know, for me, uh, growing up, I was very embarrassed about my period. I don't think that there was the same type of advocacy or conversations around periods. I got my period at age 10 and a half. I wasn't prepared. I was at my Halloween dance and I was dressed up as Jasmine and I really hated it. I hated getting my period and I managed to hide it from my older sister until I was 18. And I'm wondering if in your work you found that this stigma around periods, menstruation, as well as equitable access for, um, you know, uh, women has changed over time or if it still exists. Definitely there's been huge, huge movement of um, just access being available across the country, across the world. And, um, you know, that's, it's just exciting. It's really exciting to see because a lot of people that I've been so lucky to meet and talk to over the years that have been doing this work um, for as long or longer than I have, um, have done, you know, endless amount of hours of free work to just get these policies changed and programs implemented. Um, as far as like Red Dot Project, you know, because I work at Seneca College, uh, just naturally I have this pocket of students, you know, really within my reach where that are motivated, are passionate, that are eager. And so I, you know, I use that to really talk about this work of menstrual equity. And um, so within the Seneca community, um, you know, we try to really push that. I try to push it a lot, uh, you know, and um, so 
I often get to speak about it. I have student placement students that come and work with me on this stuff. And, um, you know, we've done quite a few initiatives, especially when we first started in 2017. And um, the founding members and I, uh, they were still students at that time in their second year of the program. A lot of our fundraising and just learning how to talk about this issue happened on campus. And that actually evolved to a point where um, at one point um, we managed to have a meeting with the president of Seneca and the, the president decided that uh, he would implement a program. So as of uh, two, September, 2019, I believe, and I, I maybe it's 2020, these years are all mixed up because of this pandemic, but um, absolutely. Yeah. Right before the pandemic, uh, was the first time when basically Seneca College implemented a college-wide program where every dispenser has been converted to free. So all the dispensers at all the campuses of Seneca, and there's, I think, four or five campuses across Toronto. Um, it's like one of the big three colleges in Ontario. They basically changed all the machines, so they're all free. So there's free access to essential supplies across. And that's just sort of was the byproduct of just building Red Dot Project and happened to do it on campus a lot to a point where we had the leverage to ask for something. And just the timing and everything worked out where uh, they were eager to participate. And there's a lot of help from different organizations where, uh, whether it's the Student Federation, um, the distributor of the supplies, cleaning supplies, and all the hygiene supplies for the school, they're um, Citron, you know, shout out to them because they really stepped up and said, you know, this is something that we're seeing and we're ready to help, you know, make this affordable for the college to do. And it worked out. And so with that, when we implemented that program, I've noticed the conversations administration opened up even more where students um, that I were talking, I was talking to, whether in the program or not in the program, um, a lot of them reached out to me and basically started talking about their periods and they a lot of them say like they never felt comfortable talking about it before. They never mentioned it, especially in front of, you know, whether it's a man or in front of anybody in general in public have ever talked about their periods and now they're feeling more comfortable to do it. And the great thing about that is now that we can talk a little bit more about periods, we can talk about how complex and, you know, how many different complications really do exist and how many people are experiencing complications with their menstruation uh, that, you know, I never knew you know, five years ago that uh, this many people, you know, have different type of, you know, things that they're dealing with, whether it's uh, endometriosis, or, you know, we see things like PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, and, you know, things like that. Like, there's a lot of people that go into, you know, forms of depression right before during their periods. And this is something they suffer and deal with um, every month. And, we never were able to have those conversations before because we couldn't even say period out loud in a, in a crowded room. Right. Um, so that's sort of where we see a big change. Yeah. And you're reminding me, I know a lot of my girlfriends talk to me about their really strong symptoms they have during their menstruation cycle. And it's not uh, seen as an excuse to miss school or miss work. So they just call in sick or make up an excuse because oftentimes employers or teachers We'll say, oh, cramps isn't, or nausea or vomiting from your period isn't a good enough excuse, right? And I've had women time and time again complain to me about this, and it's not seen as a, as a, 
as a justifiable excuse or justifiable reason to be unwell. And I think that understanding, just as you said, the many different symptoms that folks who menstruate have is, is really key and important, I think, to destigmatize periods. I want to know because I, I've been wondering, you know, I remember I was uh, teaching in a school and I saw signs for Red Dot Project and I had this like proud friend moment. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is huge. I know the founder, you know, I, I didn't know that it had grown so much because it, 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 I think it really grew so big and so fast as a movement, which is wonderful. So kudos to you for that. Uh, but since its founding, you know, you've evolved into doing community education initiatives that you talked about conferences, collaborations. You recently told me about a podcast that you did. And so how have your goals and initiatives shifted since the initial project founding? Um, and perhaps how has your fight against period poverty changed over time? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, for me, with growing Red Dot Project, uh, the goal always, and I ha- always had to try to remind myself a lot of is what the goals are. You know, for us is, we want to be as client focused, service user focused as possible. And for also, you know, I think there's great groups doing this work and uh, a lot, you know, a lot of them rightfully so, you know, you'll probably see more on TV, more on social media, doing a lot of other, you know, things like that because, and that's great. And I think that's amazing for us growing Red Dot Project. Always the focus has been is building relationships with, either the people we supply our stuff to or the organizations that work closest with those people. So for me is always building connections with the organizations that do the other stuff that affect the people that we work with. So like the organizations like Sistering, um, you know, Street Haven, you know, all these type of homeless shelters specifically for women identified people. That's the places, those are the places that where I was really trying to seek the you know maybe lack of a better term validation from and so you know maybe again a lot of times when people when i talk about red dot project and they're like oh i think i heard about it on the radio i'm like no you probably heard a different group about uh that but that's okay and that's okay uh for us like that's sort of where we sort of focused on is because again we're not charity focused we're very much um trying to build this as a uh, social service organization and i think uh, and I kept on telling, and I, and I tell, I tell the people that I work with on this early on is this issue that we're dealing with period poverty is going to be solved in the near future. We're going to get there. It's a lot of hard work from people doing it and it's going to happen. If we want Red Dot Project as an organization to continue to thrive and grow, you know, we're going to have to look at some of the other needs also tied into it that we can naturally uh, move into and pivot into. and we need to build a connection. So those are, that's where we need to stay focused on. And that's sort of what we've done over the years. And, um, but again, you know, it doesn't mean we don't also try to, uh, you know, end up on city TV news, or we don't also try to um, have other forms of social media that we really try to broadcast our message on. Um, but uh, yeah, so um you know, like you said, the conference that we've held, luckily, we were able to get one in uh, right before the pandemic, a year before the pandemic. And then as we're playing the next one, pandemic came, sort of put a pause on it. You know, the goal was May 2022, you know, bring that back and make it bigger than ever. 
Uh, we're going to have to wait and see how that goes. We'll start our planning and see where it goes. But, you know, I think for me with Red Dot Project, we've sort of hit this next stage of it where before we were talking about it, the issue at the very, like, um, just introducing it to people. This is an issue that exists. Now we're at this next stage where uh, we don't necessarily have to introduce it anymore. Now we can actually talk about the details, really put into action what we need right now to change. And, um, you know, so we, we could catch people up a lot faster and get them into action mode faster. And that's sort of where we're at. And hopefully we're getting very close to the next stage where it's, you know, the other things that periods and menstruations affect that we need to work on and get people aware of and talking about um, is, is hopefully the next stage. And that's where, again, you know, we say period poverty a bit still, but a lot of people who do this work have moved on to now talk a little bit more and using the word menstrual equity, because now we're looking at the bigger picture. Yeah. And, you know, uh, firstly, I'll say, you know, we can still do the conference. We can do it virtually. You have my support. I will help you. I've done a few virtually because of the pandemic. So definitely you have my support. And I I wanted to know a little bit more about, you know, because I did see at a school uh, some education going on there. So are you in schools across Ontario, across Canada? Is there any global focus yet? in terms of your reach, um, because you did mention you partner with lots of different organizations or you, you know, co-sponsor, co-support other organizations. Yeah. um, So, you know, officially, like we're not like in other schools, we do have people who reach out and then whenever they reach out, we are happy to support um, them. Um, You know, for me, like I don't need to see necessarily red dot project posted everywhere if there's a young student that is really passionate about this wants to start their own thing i'll give them all my experience and knowledge that i've learned um i'll share whatever resources i can and let them do their own thing if they want if they want to use red dot project's name for sure but you know if they want to have their own thing then i will support them in that also and i think that's cool is just you know being a lot giving people that opportunity to grow what they're really passionate about and if it happens to be aligned with red dot project then let's do it and um so yeah so like you said you've come across that at a school that you were at we've done other mentorship stuff with a couple of other schools across the gta they reached out they have you know and i didn't know this but some high schools they have like social like activism like courses and they get to like students get to really do stuff they're passionate on so they've asked us to come up through and you know they gave us opportunity to speak with their students and work on their pro- initiatives and help them with that so we've done those little things we've done little you know campaigns here and there but um you know for me as you know an educator and as somebody who's just wants to see people do things that they're proud of and that they can make change in and be successful in that you know, I'm happy to just support them with whatever they're looking for and, you know, doing that work, whether it is for Red Dot directly or it's their own thing that still helps the overall menstrual equity cause. I love that. I love that because it's very community driven. Oftentimes we see advocacy that's, you know, got an underlying purpose or vision or goal, you know, um, but I, I agree with you. You know, people say, oh, you know, there's competition. Competition is good. Because it means that together we can work towards, uh, you know, uh, finding a solution or, like you said, 
reaching menstrual equity. So the more the merrier. So I really, I really like that. And I really love that community spirit about you. And for me, I wanted to know a little bit more because even though uh, I'm a woman who has a period, I, I don't know a lot about the grander maybe misconceptions that people might have around period poverty or menstrual equity as a privileged person who does have access. So I wanted to know a little bit about what are those misconceptions that people have around period poverty and the lack of access to menstrual products in shelters? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, luckily in the city of Toronto, uh, we have Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam that a few years ago, uh, she advocated to have the city budget have a specific portion of it dedicated to menstrual supplies for, in the city shelters. I think Unfortunately, how things like that work, it did take a little bit longer from, you know, the excitement of the announcement to actually seeing it play out. It has maybe taken longer than we hoped, but, you know, it's it should be running. And I'm sure it's not perfect, but um, it's definitely a step forward. It helped talk about the issue a lot more and push more. Um, so, yeah, we, we see things like that happen. Um, but again, that's you know, more directly for city-run shelters. So there's the, all the organizations that aren't funded directly from the city that maybe don't have that allocated budget. And again, as much as we hoped a lot have changed, um, I think I think we see a lot more people donating uh, menstrual supplies to shelters and organizations like Red Dot Project, like a lot of the other ones out in the city of Toronto. But I think... We need to see our, you know, policies change. Our governments fund this stuff so it doesn't rely on private donations. Uh, because, you know, for me, like a big thing is, you know, when these institutions, if they don't, a lot of people, you know, lose faith in them. But when they don't make the right rules to dictate how, you know, a lot of people's attitudes are towards topics like uh, menstruation, for example. So, like, if it's always neglecting it and not funding it then it's sending this message like it's not important or it's an individual concern only and you know we see it the same thing happen for things like you know lgbt rights and things like that when pol- when institutions don't implement strong firm you know no tolerance rules uh in regards to um you know homophobia and things like that when they are you know too lenient and let, allow these things to occur then that sends this message that it's not important, right? So we need these strong policies written very clearly to say that, you know, something like having menstrual supplies access to that is a human right. And when that's there and then there's a funding allocated to it, then conversation opens up. Like I said, you know, at Seneca, once we implement this program, people now feel more open to talking about it and going into more details of, you know, their experiences. And we would see that in a lot of our policies, when we have those right policies written well, and implemented, then we start talking about it, then we start, you know, really changing our attitudes towards it. And, and so I think we're starting to get there. We've seen a lot of governments actually throughout the pandemic have really started to uh, implement or design programs that offer supplies. Seen in London, I think Hamilton, you know, in Vancouver has been a lot of the Canadian menstrual equity movement has been coming out of um, the British Columbia. So British Columbia and Ontario, I think, were are really big hubs for where you see a lot of this work being done. As we see the policies change, like this election that we just had, the federal election that just passed, 
two out of the three major parties, so the NDP and the Liberal government, they both had policies written in their platform for specifically menstrual equity uh, initiatives. So now that we're seeing that stuff come through, this is where it's like we have to really put, you know, our the pedal to the metal and really push and get these uh, things implemented and really start changing the stigma, start changing the conversation. Because, you know, we talk a lot about all this stuff, but, you know, we still fail to talk about menstruation um, past the point that, you know, and a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about it, where we say, you know, the simple fact that, you know, there are men that menstruate too, right? There are transgendered men that experience periods still throughout their transition. And even after some of the transition, they still experience uh, menstruation. And when we design and we only talk about menstruation as a woman's issue, it really leaves out a population that already is marginalized, already dealing with a lot of other issues. And then on top of that, we never address them or acknowledge that they're experiencing this issue also, then it further marginalizes them also. And we're, you know, just in the names of some of the organizations, while I know they're well-intended and maybe when they made some of their names, they didn't really know all of the things that were happening and they make them very sort of woman oriented type names. Like there's woman in it, there's girls in it or feminine or something like that built into their organization name. It sort of sends that message to uh, trans individuals that menstruate that they're sort of not really welcome there as much. And so hopefully we're getting to that point where we're starting talking about that more. Um, we've seen some campaigns in the UK that really push this idea that there are men that menstruate also. And then uh, recently uh, we've seen people like JK Rowling's, uh, we've seen Margaret Atwood sort of really go on their anti-trans rants that really opened up that conversation more of, you know, talking about you know, what, you know, who is a woman? Is it based off of whether they menstruate or not? Is it based off of genitals or what, a, you know, what really uh, is, you know, is a woman? And um, so with those conversations, hopefully we could talk a little bit more about how diverse uh, periods are. Yeah, thank you for bringing up the fact that we often, you know, pigeonhole periods to be a woman's issue, right? And that's really really harmful to trans folks. I, I think that's a really key issue that we need to address. And, you know, I was going to ask you, because I was wondering myself, what does period justice look like? But you answered that, you know, education, policy, funding, right, institutional support. And, you know, you said this one line that really caught me, uh, caught my attention. You said that menstrual equity is very achieve achievable. Menstrual equity is very achievable and far past overdue. And you've said some of this before, but maybe tell us more about how this can be achieved. So you said policy, you said some education, some funding. Are there any ways that, you know, the average person can, can achieve this? Because I know, you know, recently, for example, as you mentioned, in city-run shelters, there was funding available. And now the Ontario government has made period products available in schools and workplaces in 2021. Um, are this, is, is this enough to minimize period poverty and achieve menstrual equity? Um, but really, how do we achieve that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, those things will 
help us get to a better place. But those things will take a little more time. I think we can accelerate a lot of it. You know, things like social media is such a powerful tool. I think not that long ago on TikTok, there was just this one viral thing where, uh, you know, a young woman would sit with her boyfriend and like have a water bottle and they'll like dunk the tampon in and then you see the tampon just like absorb, explode basically almost where it absorbs all that water. And you see the reaction that the guy has, you know, those are like some of the, you know, conversations that we've had opportunities to really start talking about these issues with not even issues, just the general, what it's all about with cisgendered men that never really experienced it, that don't know anything about it and have been able to live a lot of their life uh, where they never had to. And when we could start getting away from this idea that periods are gross to a place where periods are something that are is natural, that happens, that that we all need to sort of be familiar with and know how we could support each other, especially those who are experiencing it um, better. Uh, when we could do that, then we could start to really see that bigger change. Like, so really, I think holding, uh, you know, our cisgendered boyfriends uh, or sons or fathers, brothers, whoever they are, you know, holding them a little more accountable to doing some of the work of themselves and learning and understanding what this all is about, what periods are about, what are some of the you know difficulties are, and even ask themselves why, you know, they're so uncomfortable with, you know, just holding a box of tampons in public or something like that. Like those are the things that they have to start to do those reflections and not do it for them, you know, just hold them, just expect them to be better, <laughs> better people. Like, uh, and I think that's something we could do for a lot of things for cisgender men. Obviously, there's a lot of things uh, we can do better. Uh, and, and I'm still learning a lot. I'm still, you know, there's still times when I like, you know, talk about, I've, I've been fairly comfortable talking about menstruation in public, but there's still times when I'm, you know, in front of another group of guys that, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, debate whether, okay, do I bring it up? Do I talk about it? Do I not? And then, you know, those are the moments when I should step up more, right. And, and think about, you know, how do I become a better um, you know, I know we use the term ally a lot now, uh, you know, whether it's ally or you use the term, uh, some people use the term accomplice or co-conspirator. Yes, exactly. Co-conspirator, accomplice, any, whatever you, term you use, um, to do that better is, you know, it's when it's even more uncomfortable is when you have to try to stand up and really uh, understand that better. So, you know, I think just not letting cisgender men just get away with ignoring the issues because quite frankly unfortunately one of the big reasons a lot of the policies aren't passing is because the people in power who are most uncomfortable with this issue are the ones who have the decision making power to make it better and when they can't say period or menstruation or anything in their workplaces in public without being uncomfortable or using a euphemism then how are they able to be have that power where they can make the decisions whether or not you know there's funding that's adequate for it or policies that make it um you know necessary for workplaces to provide you know these things so um i think that's the big thing that we have to really start is work with the people around us that don't experience this that have privilege that may get privilege to have these decision making powers and the, the more comfortable they are with this, the 
I think more informed and better decision making you'll see they do from that. Absolutely. I was going to say disrupt the patriarchy, you know, because <laughs> I can't tell you, you know, how often you, you took the words out of my mind, my mouth when you said, you know, you know, men will always say it's gross or boys will say it's gross. And that really does create the shame. And the decision makers we know, right, the policymakers, they are still very much dominated those those roles by white men. And if men aren't comfortable talking about periods, then how are they going to advocate? So I, I think you really gave us a lot to think about. And I really appreciate your time today. And I, I just want to end with asking you for our listeners, how can they support your mission of equitable access to menstrual products and get in touch with you and support the Red Dot Project? Yeah, uh, you know, we've been very, very lucky in this last little while um, as far as, you know, receiving donations and things like that. Um, so for us in general, like, I think we're okay for our operational needs for the next little while. Um, but again, you could contact us, red.projecttoronto.org, and we will be happy to connect you with tons of other organizations that are doing very similar work. And I think that's really important is, you know, just just understanding what work is being done out there and where this is going and really supporting. I think a lot of it is the policy changes that we need that we're hoping for, right? We saw the Ontario government uh, recently uh, make it where public schools were going to have access to supplies. And that sounded great. And then there became the details. And then we learned that that wasn't going to be accessible to a lot of the northern rural schools, specifically indigenous reserves and you know schools. And then there had to been a lot. And then there was a lot of uproar and a lot of advocacy made to a point where then the federal government stepped in and then they said, OK, we'll make it available to everybody. Right. Those are the things that we always need support in is when the governments, whoever make these policies, they do it poorly. We have to criticize and we need to ask them to do it right. And again, that only gets the, the, those changes only happen when we have a lot of people having that same message. So, you know, you could follow Red Dot Project on Instagram at Red Dot Project Toronto. Um, and then once you follow us, I'm sure you'll get tons of other similar like groups that you could follow too. And just keeping in touch, knowing when, you know, we need this support to. Uh, spread certain messages out that we could get that out there. Um, that's that's one of the biggest things that's free, that's easy, doesn't take a lot of time or effort, that does a huge difference in a lot of our work. Um, so that would be probably what I would love to see. Absolutely. And so folks, listeners, if you're listening, uh, please continue having these courageous, critical, difficult conversations for, for men about menstruation, really thinking about advocating those of you who are in policy or looking to get into policy, really supporting policy. Of course, there's funding needed for lots of organizations, not only Red Dot Project, volunteering, sharing posts, and, and really advocating. So uh, thank you so much, Phil, for joining us today to talk about a really important topic, which I would have called, you know, period poverty, but now you taught me the word menstrual equity. Uh, I really appreciate you being here today. Uh, it's great to connect with you. And, you know, of course, you do so many amazing things, but this is just one of those wonderful things you do. So thank you so much, folks. Please do uh, connect with the Red Dot Project. And in closing, of course, 
listen and rate and review this podcast if you love this episode. And let us know what you want to hear more about. Follow the podcast and visit us on Instagram at Curated Leadership. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you so much again for having me. And everybody, five stars. Uh, I want to see all the five stars on that Apple uh, review site. I'm going to check in two weeks after this gets uploaded. So I'm going to count. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Thank you so much for your support.